into an audience that's mind is somewhere else. Right? And so it's very tempting sometimes, and every once in a while, I believe the Lord does lead this way, to relocate to wherever you're located and say, okay, this morning we're going to preach from your home address of being caught up in politics. Um, that could happen. I'm just going to do some lip service to that for this morning. Because actually what we have to say from the word here is, is much more vital to our lives. And, and let, me, let me make that point on the back of this issue. Right? We're in Acts chapter 1, going into Acts chapter 2 now. Peter preached and shared from Acts chapter 2. Uh, we're going to unpack some more of Acts chapter 2. But I'm going to sit us down for a moment in Acts 1 and 2 this morning. This event that we're observing in Scripture happens in A.D. 33 in the midst of a world that had politics going on. So there's, there's, there's stuff happening. There are, there are social issues all around the church in the first century. There are political figures in offices making policy decisions all around the church in the first century. So those would not be unique for us, but we might be uninformed a little bit as some of us are responding to this week's political going-ons in a way that maybe just needs to get a little bit more informed by the Bible today. Because I know some folks didn't do real well this week with what happened in the political world. But let me take you back to the upper room. The guys gathered in the upper room. What was going on politically in the world around them while they were hanging out, all 120 of them, in an upper room about to prepare for an event that we are exploring together? Well, here's some thoughts on the Roman world in which they lived. For wealthy Romans, life was good. They lived in beautiful houses, often on the hills outside the smell. Away from Rome, away from noise, they enjoyed an extravagant lifestyle with luxurious furnishings, surrounded by servants and slaves to cater to their every desire. So while they're gathered in the upper room, there is a government that not only allows slavery, but promotes slavery going on. Now, when you think slavery, you immediately think American slavery. So you just made it a black-white issue, and you were wrong. Because Roman slavery touched everybody. Right? So every culture, matter of fact, you were more likely to be a white slave in this culture than you were to be a black slave in this culture. But while you're meeting, while you're having your prayer meeting in the upper room, there is a government that's fostering slavery going on around you. Poorer Romans, however, could only dream of such a life. Sweating it out in the city, they lived in shabby, squalid houses that could collapse or burn at any moment. If times were hard, they might abandon newborn babies to the streets, hoping that someone else would take them in as servants or slaves. Now, while the upper room is meeting... That's the condition of society all around them. And there's a government involved. The president, while the upper room meeting is going on, was actually titled an emperor. His name was Tiberius. His political inability, poor judgment, and jealousy led Rome into a dark age of political purges, murder, 
and terror. Okay, so in the news, the next guy up to be president, you know, he's being murdered, taken out by the government itself who is in control of the political structures of the day. Followed by Tiberius would be Caligula. Interesting fellow, this Caligula. Sometimes Caligula dressed in silk robes and was covered in jewels. Caligula pretended he was a god. He forced senators to grovel and kiss his feet and seduce their wives at dinner parties. Then his eccentricities became even more murderous. He restored the hated treason trials of his predecessor, executing both rivals and close allies. Later on it says, at this time Caligula was spending vast quantities of money. I'm guessing that was like a Roman stimulus plan right there. Um, His extravagance soon emptied Rome's treasury, which Tiberius had greatly increased. Still spending, right? you got political issues here, right? you got a spending government. Still spending, but now short of cash. Wow, apparently that's new. (laughs) That still goes on. He began blackmailing leading (coughs) Roman families and confiscating their estates. In 40 A.D., he led an army north into Gaul, robbing its inhabitants before marching to the shore to invade Britain. A little different tax policy back then. You know, we need to raise some funds. We're not going to have a discussion about passing a law on whether to tax the rich or the poor, the businesses or the not. We're just going to come steal your stuff. We're just going to send an army, and what's yours is now ours. And if you don't cooperate, you know that little slavery thing? That's where you'll be next. You'll be a slave to someone as we sell you off. How about the next guy, Nero, next president of Rome? Nero started well. He ended secret trials, gave the Senate more independence. He banned capital punishment, reduced taxes, and allowed slaves to sue unjust owners. He provided assistance to cities that that had suffered disasters. It's probably like the first FEMA meeting taking place right there. And I'm pretty sure they didn't know what they were doing either. Uh, (laughs) Gave aid to the Jews and established open competitions in poetry, drama, and athletics. However, like Caligula before him, Nero had a dark side. His impulses began as simple extravagance. Before long, however, stories were circulating that he seduced married women and young boys, and that he had castrated a married male slave and married a male slave. He also liked to wander the streets murdering innocent people at random. How many of y'all still feel really bad about who we have as a president? (laughs) Listen, we, we we can overlook something. In the upper room, the people of God gathered because God was doing something in the midst of all that was going on around them in the world in which they lived. This is a fallen world. America is not Israel. We do not live in some special status. We live in a fallen world amongst fallen governments. But here's what's a bigger point for you and me. 2,000 years ago, there was a group of people gathered in an upper room, and God was up to something with his people, and he was going to pour out his spirit on their lives. And that little gathering of 120 people with the spirit of God falling upon them would change the world. 
And you can tell me more about those people than you can about any of the leaders that I just described. You might have heard of Tiberius and Caligula, and maybe. You heard of Nero. But what God did in that meeting with a little group of people was more important to the future history of this planet than any other government, any other leader, whether they were likable or not likable. The biggest thing that happened to you and I is not what happened on Tuesday. It's what happened in a little meeting a couple of thousand years ago where these folks gathered together and God did something mind-blowing and amazing. And what you and I need to be aware of this morning is he had every intention that that meeting wouldn't be a reference point for us in the past. It would be a present-day reality. Because it is still a reality. So open to Acts chapter 2. Peter preached from these passages and took us to this point in Acts chapter 2 where Peter is about to preach, the, really you could say the inaugural message for the church. He's going to preach the first message once the church has been birthed here on the day of Pentecost, beginning in verse 22. And, and I'm actually not going to, although I'd wanted to, start into this message this week going to hold off on that and do that next week. But I just want to pick up on a little bit of a sense. Remember where we are. Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God has fallen in the upper room. Wind has blown through, tongues of fire. Those who are gathered begin to speak in tongues. They have walked out of their upper room meeting into the street. People have noticed. Crowds have gathered. And now Peter's going to preach the gospel to them. So he's going to proclaim this message of the gospel, when he says, men of Israel, in verse 22, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he's going he's gonna to preach and unpack a message for them. Clarifying who this Jesus is and that this has been the plan from the ages. This has been what God was doing from a long, long time ago. This was not some weird event that happened, some spurious moment where this good teacher got, fell into the hands of some bad people. And oh my goodness, what a surprise, the good guy lost. That's not Peter's tone at all. You guys don't realize it. You just crucified the Lord of glory. You don't realize it, but the plan that God has always had to send his son to take on human form, it was Jesus Christ. And he begins to show them that from the Old Testament. So he's going to preach to us a message, and, and something powerful by the Spirit is going to happen. When a group of people who just 50 days earlier were crucifying the Christ, we're calling for him to be crucified. We're shouting out in the streets for him to be crucified. Would rather have a slave set free than Jesus Christ be set free. Remember this crowd? Well, this crowd, by the time we get to the end of this message being preached, is going to be pierced to the heart, and they're going to be begging for an answer. 
That's the power of the gospel in people's lives. But I don't want us to get into the proclamation of this word just yet. I want us to sit down for a second in what we've discovered in Acts chapter 1 and in Acts chapter 2. Because there are a couple of things that we've encountered here that I think are critical to moving on as ministers of the gospel. Peter's a minister of the gospel here. But what's happened, we've observed two things. We called one of them the great weight. This gathering of the 120 in the upper room who gathered and they waited on God. They postured their lives. Faith was being stirred. The word of God was being shared. They, they were sort of in a fasting posture from the world and its activities. And their attention was, don't go anywhere, don't do anything. Give yourself to God and be prepared for whatever it is that he's going to do. And they weren't quite sure exactly what he was going to do. But they were being prepared in their hearts. And then God moves, and there is this outpouring of the Spirit upon all flesh. This, this moment that Joel prophesied about that Peter preached to us, wonderfully preached to us. Please get the tape if you were not here, or the CD, or go online. So many ways you can hear stuff these days. It's not a tape, is it? Um, but two, two things happen here, and, and, and I, I want to highlight this because I, I think I think there's a, there's a disconnect between us and what happens in Acts chapter 2. I think the waiting, the stirring, the preparation, the face toward God, the openness, the, the posture to receive was important for the day of the outpouring. And I, I think I put this illustration in your eyes. It's kind of like, like Velcro. You know, Velcro's got two sides to it. It's got that one side, it's got a bunch of little hooks, little, little bitty, tiny little bitty plastic hooks. When you just slide your hand on it, it just feels like just rough plastic. But they're little bitty, bitty hooks, right, to grab stuff. And then the other side of Velcro is this, this fuzzy stuff that's there to be grabbed. And when you put that on there, that one grabs the other one, right? And you get this strong invention that came out years ago. But, you know, if you, if you don't have both sides, you got no sticking taking place, right? You, take, you get rid of the little, little plasticky little hook thing. You just move that out the way and, and stick that on, that little fuzzy thing on anything. You know, it, it can't stick to anything. There's nothing to grab it. Right? And I think that in many ways describes the church who loves to read about Acts chapter 2. We love this idea. Man, there's power. People experienced this amazing power. Their lives were changed. Peter, the denier of God, is preaching and telling the same people who could have killed him, now you crucified the Lord. That's boldness in his life. We love this. But it's like God coming with Velcro. And we read about it, and it slides right off of our lives. We attend meetings, and it slides right off of our lives. And this, this power encounter with God doesn't seem to have the same effect on us as it did on them. I think there's something to be said that there's an element in, in which full gospel ministry, I'm going to call it that and you'll see why in a second. Full gospel ministry begins in Acts chapter 1. It doesn't begin when Peter opens his mouth to explain to them the gospel. It's already been going on. And if the church blows off Acts chapter 1 and, and half of Acts chapter 2 and just wants to say, here's the message that we have, I think we're going to be this, these Velcro people. We're going to be missing something all the time. 
What was needed was a, was a people with some little clingy hooks all inside of them. That God had stirred up faith. God had made their life and their hope to rest in whatever God was going to do next. God had made them to be anticipating. God had brought them into a meeting like this with their face toward Jerusalem. Leaving all kinds of other things alone with a heart that says, whatever God's about to do, I'm here for that. And something postured them differently to receive. It's like God installed the little plastic hooks so that when he said, okay, now it's time for the outpouring. God sent his spirit and it stuck to their lives. And these people changed the world as a result. As we're going to see today, I think God has allowed for us to live in the day of his outpouring. We live in that day. But I think we live in the day, it looks like this. Uninstalled hooks in our lives. Not enough faith, eagerness, openness, receptivity. There's something to be said to having an ability to receive what God does. This is an incredible day that we live in. This is not a day that's waiting for a day. Do you realize... Most of the Bible is waiting for this day. It's standing there waiting for it. It can't have what you and I can have. It's waiting for this day to come. You know, these rivers that that Peter talked about last week, these rivers of living water. And then Jesus pauses and says, well, this, the Bible says, he spoke in reference to the Spirit, which they were to receive, but they had not because Jesus had not yet been glorified. The Bible's been waiting for this day. You and I live in a day that everybody else in Scripture was waiting for. And yet sometimes our lives look just like their lives, like, like we're still waiting for it too. I think it's not because there's not an outpouring. I think because we don't know how to receive it. We've skipped the upper room and jumped right in the halfway through Acts chapter 2. We just we joined the meeting already in progress. We've wandered out onto the streets to listen to Peter preach and say, hey, hey, I get that. That's the gospel. Let me bring the gospel too. Let me go ahead and preach the gospel. Uh, I think there's a fullness to the gospel ministry that needs more than just you with some words and me with some words. This, this day in Acts chapter 2, they've waited for this day, and then there's this outpouring. This day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 needs to be viewed by us a certain way. It it needs to be viewed as a moment in which something began. Something began. What Joel prophesied about was a day of the outpouring of God. He didn't mean a moment. He meant an age in which the Spirit's going to be outpoured. You can hear the way in which Peter explains the phenomena. What happened on that day? Well, the Spirit came, there was wind that blew. Okay, when I go back and I read Joel, Joel doesn't say anything about wind. There were tongues of fire. Joel doesn't say anything about that. They spoke in tongues. Joel didn't say anything about that. What did Joel say? Well, he said that kind of stuff's going to happen. These signs are going to take place. People are going to prophesy. They're going to have visions. I'm going to pour out my Spirit on your male servant, your female servant. People are going to get saved. It's just, it's Joel saying there's coming a day where this kind of stuff is going to happen. It wasn't just a day, one day, one 24-hour day called the day of Pentecost that once the Spirit comes, hey, when you and I talk about that kind of day, let's talk about that day. No, you and I are living in the day. Joel described a, an age of outpouring. So, so my question for us this morning is, is Pentecost for you, in your thinking, in your appreciation of it as an event, 
is, is it a starting line or a finish line? Right? So, you know, unique things happen at a starting line. You know, run, runners take your mark and they wait. Right? Okay. Upper room, long wait, long, you know, 10 days in this posture. Take your marks and you got to wait and you wait and you wait. And then something else unique happens at the starting line. And the, and the race starts. Okay, that's unique. But the race isn't over. I'm like, well, I heard a gun. Pew! Race that started the race, right? Now, as you keep going, you don't keep hearing. Pew! 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 Well, maybe if you're in the wrong neighborhood, you know, and you're running a race. Uh, but usually this, this, this unique stuff happens at the starting gate. But the race is on. And the race is going to keep going. Right? It, 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 is, it is more, this is kind of a, a word that's a little touchy right now. It's an inaugural day. Right? What, what happens on the day of inauguration? Does the president's uh, leadership office come to an end? Or does it begin? He's, he's about to serve in that capacity. And this day of inauguration, Pentecost was a day of inauguration. Derek Tomic says, in the last days, that phrase that Joel used, Pentecost ushered in the last days. Peter understood Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit as having inaugurated the end. This is a beginning point. Now, now when you come to this topic in your life, you come to the day of Pentecost, do you you rewind back to a day with huge fireworks and amazing events, or do you see that as the day in which you and I live right now? I'm going to engage God. I'm going to receive from God in something that looks like the continuation of what was begun in Pentecost. I think, I think there's, there's a, a disease in Pentecostalism. It's this, this disease that makes us look back, you know, look back inappropriately. And I'm missing, wait, don't you mean like the cessationists look back? Yeah, they do too. But I think Pentecostals look back sometimes. Look back to that event that happened at Pentecost, and then look back to that event that happened for me 20 years ago. And I got a calendar day when I was filled with the Spirit. And I look back to that. And if you had a graph of Spirit activity, you know, that day might look like this. And you're over here now. It it shouldn't be that way. We live in the age of the outpouring. The outpouring that happened on Acts chapter 2 is still happening today. Might look a little bit different than what we saw there, right? Starting gate has unique sounds and stuff going on, but we're still in the race. It's still the outpouring of God. I, I want us to be, when we get to this gospel ministry concept, I want us to be all inclusive, right? You guys see those advertisements for all inclusive vacations, right? Includes airfare, includes lodging, meals are included, right? Everything's in this thing. All right, so what does gospel ministry include? Well, I, I think it includes waiting. I think it includes the upper room. I think it includes the people of God learning that there's something about receiving from God that doesn't just fit into our back pocket and our busy pace. And if the church decides to abandon that, it will have abandoned an aspect of gospel ministry that will affect the way in which we move forward. I I think the fullness, all-inclusive ministry of the gospel includes the outpouring of the Spirit. The unusual intrusion of a force and a moving element that is not you and me. You participate in it, but the ultimate force is from God by the Spirit in mysterious ways. 
And then the full gospel involves the proclamation of the gospel, which is what we're going to pick up from Peter here. Peter's going to proclaim the gospel. You know, there's so much here in Acts that we would be forever if I try to unpack everything that's here. But, but I, do, I would make a, uh, a distinction between what happened when they spoke in tongues and what happened when Peter spoke in the known language. I don't think it's accurate for people to say, well, that was uniquely God giving the gift of tongues to folks to be able to preach the gospel to people in foreign lands and foreign languages. No. They spoke in tongues and exalted the mighty things of God in languages known by the people. And then Peter turned around in one language and preached the gospel. So I don't think it's accurate to say that the tongues were them preaching the gospel. Peter's going to preach the gospel. And we're going we're to get a, that next week and, and take that apart a bit. But here's, here's my concern for all-inclusive. All-inclusive ministry for the church means this in your outline. I don't have permission to de-emphasize. I don't have permission, and you don't have permission to de-emphasize any of these. First, there should be no such thing as a Pentecostal church that has misplaced accurate gospel and doctrinal emphasis. Because as soon as they wait in the upper room, they're opening their Bible. God's revealing things to them while they're waiting. The Spirit falls upon them. And one of the best messages, perhaps the best ever preached on the gospel, is going to happen in Acts chapter 2. So there's phenomena. And then there's critical, vital content about the gospel and doctrine that's going to come out of Peter's mouth. So don't think I get permission to de-emphasize that. You know, I'm a lover of the move of God and you doctrinal people. You don't get permission to do that. Second, there should be no such thing as a gospel-centered church that has misplaced the subjective realities of the age of the outpoured spirit that accompanies gospel proclamation. No church has permission to jump right into Acts chapter 2 and say, okay, we're there with Peter. This is our message. This is what we have to say. This is the clear doctrine that that we're seeking to present to the world. But you don't get to skip the other aspects of gospel ministry that take place in the same context. You don't get to decide, you know what, we just need a clear message. We don't need the outpoured spirit to fall on us in amazing ways that blows our minds and does things in our midst that that half of us can't explain. We don't need to wait to receive some unusual dimension of the spirit into our lives. We just need a a clear message. Listen, we don't get that option here. That's not how it comes to us. Now, now I want to fast forward to Romans 15, if you'll turn there with me. I want to fast forward because I think what, what is inaugurated on this day, 25 years later, we're going to find Paul writing about here in Romans 15. Paul is going to describe full gospel ministry in this passage. Years later in his life, 20, about 25 years after the day of Pentecost has come. What began, Paul still says, is still going on. What we saw in Acts chapter 2 is still happening and it's still normal. Romans 15, verse 14. Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of, of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles 
may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. By word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Let's pray for a moment. Father, thank you for clarity, truth, realities in your word. They provoke us. They inform us. Lord, thank you that they feed our souls. They bring hope to our lives. Lord, may the outcome of this word in our lives bring pleasure to you. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of quick thoughts that are here. There's a lot we could learn from here. What what was the Apostle Paul satisfied with concerning uh, the life of the local church? This is what Peter, this is what the move of the apostles in Acts chapter 1 and 2 was seeking to establish. Because once they get on the move here, they're going to go plant churches all over the place. That's, that's their modus operandi. So what is it that Paul is pleased to see when he looks at the church and he measures Rome, a church that he hadn't been to, a church that he didn't found, and he measures them, what are some of the things that he, he speaks of them? And hey, I'm satisfied in seeing this. Well, a couple of quick thoughts. One, they were full of goodness. Right? They were, there was a reality to the life of the gospel in the midst of them. The way they treated one another, the way they walked out their relationships, the way they cared for people and cared for the poor. They were full of goodness. There, there was integrity about their lives. They were people, if you got in the midst of them and somebody talked to you about that church, you just said, man, those, those are some good people. They affected people that way. And so he sees them as full of goodness. He says, secondly, they were filled with knowledge. They they were taught, and they, they were taught well, and they were filled with doctrine and truth that mattered in their life. There were things that they had deep convictions about. There were truths and concepts that they were students of. Right? So a church should it should be able to be said of a church. You, you, you're good people. Caring for one another. You are, you are well instructed and, and you have good understandings. You're filled with the right knowledge. You know the stuff that really matters. And then third, he says, they were able to instruct one another. And I think that, that's a very telling phrase for me. I, I think that's a representation of they were mature. Right? Because there's a big difference, and you know this. There's a big difference between what you've been taught and what you are now able to teach someone else. If you don't know the difference, volunteer to lead the next covenant group meeting. And you will quickly appreciate how well you understood anything that was said on Sunday. (laughs) As you stand up and try and direct people's thoughts toward it and clarify which of these is the most important issue and why that scripture was a reference for this concept right here. You'll find out what you own in that moment. I think there's a, there's a great difficulty in the body of Christ when, when we just get used to absorbing and absorbing and absorbing and listening and listening and listening. And, and then when we go to give it away, we kind of can't do that real well, right? There, there's convictions in your life, and there should be, 
knowledge of truth, how well do you do in being able, listen carefully, to convince others? Not just to tell them that you have some ideas. How well do you do in being able to convince others about what you believe? Now, I understand there's a realm in which the Holy Spirit's got a, a live in that in their life. But you and I are called upon to skillfully present truth and to know it in such a way that I can, I can, I can maneuver around this argument. I've got some things to say here. I'm, I'm studied and I'm prepared to talk to you about some of this stuff. And if I'm not prepared, just give me a few minutes and I can be prepared to talk about some things. That, that needs to describe the body of Christ. Churches like those that are there in Rome. Paul Tripp in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand, says, Our tendency toward ecclesiastical consumerism has seriously weakened the church. For most of us, church is merely an event we attend or an organization we belong to. We do not see it as a calling that shapes our entire life. But consider this. We could not hire enough paid staff to meet the ministry needs of the average local church. Not supposed to. I believe it would be wrong to. The passive body that pays the professionals, culture of the modern evangelical church, must be forsaken for the ministry model God has so widely ordained. God has raised up every one of us here this morning with an outpouring of the Spirit that uniquely sits in each one of our lives. We're not all called to do exactly the same thing. We're not formed and fashioned by God to do all exactly the same thing. But we are called, and we're called to do some things, and we're called to do them well, and we're called to do them in the power of the Spirit and to accomplish an end. Every last one of us is called to that. Would you, would you think that the, the average Christian, the average Christian, can sit with somebody, share the gospel with them, and lead them to conversion? Do you think the average Christian can do that? Or, or, or is that something that's being relegated to the specialists, you know, the professionals, you know, the people who stand behind pulpits and use microphones? Do you, do you know anybody who talks about, hey, uh, I prayed with so-and-so recently, and they, they, they were saved. And I led so-and-so in the sinner's prayer. And, you know. Listen, this, this, shouldn't, this shouldn't just happen when somebody else besides any of us, just average Christians, are leading something. Now, I do think there's, there's corporate evangelism and there's individual evangelism. And I'm not here to, to step on either one of them or to say one of them is more heroic than the other one. I believe when we do corporate evangelism, you invite somebody to service here and God is in this place and conviction is moving and God is making himself known and the word of God is being preached and at the end there are times when we are inviting folks to respond and and they're here by your invitation or they're just here because they know you come to church, you didn't even invite them, they just felt like coming and God uses that meeting. You you invite somebody and you sit with them through weeks and weeks of alpha and they, they hear the gospel and the, maybe the table leader's facilitating that or Frank has said something and, and, and people are listening to that and they come to a point of decision in their life. Listen, that, 
that's appropriate, it's biblical, it's, it's wonderful, we should do that, we should, the church is obligated to create corporate contexts where that can happen. But it is not the only context for evangelism. When you're just with somebody that you know, at any moment the Spirit of God can anoint you to lead them to conversion and to the other side at any moment. Right? It's not just, it's not just when, you, when you get a full-time job doing this, all of a sudden you do this. I, I thank God that I, I wasn't spiritually raised with that idea. When, when, I, was, uh, when I was in college, when I was in high school, you know, would share the gospel with people with the thought that, that they could get saved right here. In, in college, I was part of a campus ministry at LSU, and we, we would go out on the campus, and we would just talk with people on the campus. And, and we'd lead them through discussions to consider what they believe and what does the Bible say. And uh, did mission stuff. We did a, a thing in Daytona Beach, the, the beach outreach kind of thing that they would do every year in Daytona, which was an interesting place to to be in spring break, Daytona, oh my gosh. Um, but I, I remember being, and I don't have much of a memory, but I do remember being on the beach with another guy, a friend of mine, and we encountered this guy sitting all by himself in a lawn chair, just facing the ocean, just sat there and sat there and sat there. So he was, he was a stationary target, so that made it easy. We wanted to walk up and share the gospel with him. But as we started talking to him, he was a troubled man. He was a Vietnam veteran. And we just started talking through his life. And he was a very nice guy, very open guy. And we talked to him for a couple of hours. And at the end of that time, he prayed with us on the beach to be saved. I went to work after graduating college in the CBD. And I can remember occasions down there at lunchtime. I had lunch one day with this guy. I don't remember where. I think his name was Jim. I don't know where Jim came from, but met with Jim a few times, talked with him. He and I in, in, the, in the O. Henry's, remember the O. Henry's right there on uh, Barone Street, sat with Jim in O. Henry's during lunch, talked about the gospel. We had had a couple of meetings before, and, you know, right while they're just serving lunch, man, and we're at this table here, and he's praying right there at the table to be saved. Right? You, the average Christian should be able to lead people to conversion. We should know the gospel. We should be able to teach it to others. That's what Paul was commending here. The, the average Christian walking with friends should be able to give counsel to help them respond to a conflict in their life. You know, some broken relationship has gone on, and you're friends with this person, and they're responding to it, and they're publishing all the dirt, and they're angry, and they're hurt, and they're offended, the average Christian should know the basic steps of reconciliation. The basic steps from the Word of God to take somebody through an examination of their own soul, confession and restoration in a relationship as much as possible with them. Right? The, the average Christian shouldn't sound like this. A person comes to you and say, you know what so-and-so did to me? You're not going to believe this. You're going to need to sit down. And then you start dumping and trashing and dumping and trashing and dumping and trashing. And then you listen and you go, I know. I know. Look, i got people just like that in my life. As a matter of fact, let me tell you, and you just up them. You know, you just bring your story. So let me tell you about my boss. Let me tell you, let me tell you about what my mom did. I mean, I, boom, man, we're just going to just load up. We build buildings as to who's, who's been around bigger jerks. Yeah, I know. I'm with you. It's horrible, isn't it? Yeah, man. 
How about a little bit of biblical leadership in that moment? You're able to instruct one another. How about helping that person not to take their being offended into the category of sinfulness? Do you realize the average Christian should be doing that? But these things don't always happen. The average married Christian should be able to help another Christian couple through marriage problems. But every person that you bump into shouldn't be like, oh, I'm going to need to refer you to a professional. Let me call the church and see if one of the pastors can meet with you. Hey, yeah, there's situations where that's necessary, but that's not an everyday event. The everyday stuff, every one of us should be available for. And that's what Paul saw when he looked into this church in Rome. He saw this. Let me move along here a little bit. Verse 15. He says, but... On some points, right, he commends them, but he says, but on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. Now, remember, I'm going somewhere with this, so don't get lost in the, in the points. When we get to the end of this, Paul's going to say, this is full gospel ministry powered by the Holy Spirit. All right, so let's make sure we see kind of where, do, where does this end up for Paul. But he says, I've spoken to you very boldly by way of reminder on some points because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So a couple of quick thoughts here. Full gospel ministry for Paul meant... uh, Having people make room to be reminded, to be instructed, to be instructed about stuff that they'd previously already been instructed about, to be reminded again, you know, to very potentially run the risk that somebody's sitting in a meeting that Paul is leading or a letter that he's writing and saying, Paul, do you, you got anything else to share, dude? You've already kind of, you already shared a lot of that with us. He, he says that's exactly what he should have been doing. And what's interesting here is these people who needed to be boldly reminded, uh, what did he just say about them? He says, you guys are full of goodness, you're filled with knowledge, and you're able to teach one another, and you need to be reminded about some things. Really? Guys that are described by those descriptions, they need to still be reminded about stuff? Yes. I'm 30-something years later, having been saved, and i got a lot of room for being reminded of a lot of things. That's just the, the nature of our lives. This ministry from Paul for the church meant this, people available to receive from called men. That's what he's describing right here. And Paul says, because of the grace given to me, he's not referring to saving grace, the grace given to me as a minister, the grace that God called me to do something in the life of people. He refers to that earlier in Romans 1. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Ephesians 3, 7, uh, Paul refers to the same element when he says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. That's the grace he's referring to right here, which was given me by the working of his power. The full ministry of the gospel means that we need to be open to receiving from people who come bring this kind of stuff into our lives. Later on, Paul would say to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. 
to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, Paul says something here that, I don't know, I just got, I probably need to tweak out just for a second, just to, to let you sit behind the pulpit for a second here. There are some things that Paul is going to say that he's going to say boldly to them. He's, he's going to say it again. So how many of y'all just love to hear bold again? Bold again. That was a little over the top again, right? I mean, this is kind of the content of a little bit of what, what he's saying. All right, do, do you... Do recognize this, not everybody in this room enjoys bold again exactly the same way. Some people are fine with that. Matter of fact, some people beg for it. Uh, some people plead, please, I know that there's blood trickling right here, but please hit me again with the hammer. Uh, people just love to be related to that way. That is some people in this room. As a matter of fact, some of them will feel like, brothers, I don't know that you really preach the gospel today. Because I, there's no blood coming off of me. Um, and then there's others here who the second anything sounds just beyond whisper, that's really over the top, man. That's I don't think that's I don't think that's necessary, Keith. That's really way too far. Uh, all right. So can you can you help the guy behind the pulpit out here? That's got more to do with you <laughs> than it does to do with one of us up here. Well, not always, except for when Peter's preaching. It has, <laughs> has everything to do with him. Um, but can, can, there's something here in this passage, and you've got to pick this up, because I, I don't think I would have felt the weight of this years ago. I don't think I would have felt the weight of it without having felt the weight of being called to be a pastor. He says something in this passage. He says, I've spoken to you boldly by way of reminder. He gives some qualifications, and he comes back to this point. So that, here's why. Here's why I've done what I've done. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. What's the offering of the Gentiles? It is those who are going to receive ministry, become believers, and be an offering to God with their lives. All right, so... So here's what's happening when Paul is preaching to these people. He's not thinking this one moment, this is just this one moment. We're all together this one moment. Paul is thinking those who will receive this ministry and will begin to walk in further ministry in God are going to be an offering to God. They're, they're going to be the church 10 years from now. They're going to be the church 20 years from now. And so what, what I'm establishing and what I'm preaching and what I'm saying and how I'm emphasizing it needs to serve the church 10 years from now and 20 years from now and in the next generation. That, that's what he's aware of. And he's saying that God is a particular way. And that when people turn their life to God, they're, they're not turning their life to the postman who comes down and drops something in your mailbox and waves. You're not turning your life towards some created being that you have some level of respect for. Paul says, I'm calling you to worship the one true glorious God of the universe. It's a big task. And what I'm saying about him and how I'm explaining him to you. See, the guy behind the pulpit has got some responsibility here. It's not just responsibility for what, what went on in this one meeting. It's responsibility for where will the church be 10 years from now if we keep preaching like this. Where will the church be 20 years from now? Where will the doctrine of the church be 20 years from now, 50 years from now? 
Right? Have you visited some churches that call themselves Christians? Do you understand that John Wesley would roll over in his grave today? He visited some of the churches that were named after him, and so would Martin Luther. At some point, somebody started preaching something different. And it mattered. Now, I know I get in trouble in this category. I've tried to not get in this much trouble, honestly, lately in the last few years. But I just, I just don't agree with everything that's said under the umbrella of Christianity. And so sometimes, like I just did, I'm going to highlight something about that. Now, you, you got, I run a risk when I do that, I realize it, because i got a certain personality. Uh, it is what it is. I try to be careful. But you're going to run the risk that when you hear somebody stand in the pulpit and say, that thing over there, that's, that's not a good thing. Oh, really? Well, who are you to say that's not a good thing? That's pretty arrogant. So what are you, one of those churches that think you're the only one who got it going on right? Is that right? Those churches, there's some good things going on in those churches. I know my grandmother went to a church like that, dude. You know, all right, so this is the risk that gets run here. But Paul emphasized certain doctrinal truths. It was important. It was vital. It was critical that the gospel be what God said it was and not some adjusted version. And he reminded them over and over and over again about certain things because it was critical for the future of the church. So full gospel ministry meant Paul, matter of fact, here, he's describing full gospel ministry at the end of the longest teaching book in the New Testament. I think Paul thought teaching the word of God and an emphasis on doctrine had something to do with full gospel ministry. See, this was not a man who just said, hey, let's just wind this meeting up, make it look like Acts chapter 2. Hey, hey, we don't need to do all that teaching stuff. That's the problem with some of those churches that are teaching stuff and teaching too much. This is Paul in Romans 15. This guy's been dealing out some serious doctrine for 15 chapters. And he says, this is full gospel ministry. But this is not all he says about full gospel ministry. When Paul gets to verse 17... He's going to pull us back towards Acts chapter 1 and 2. In Christ then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. To bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. When Paul begins to say, this is, this is the ministry that I've participated in from here all the way around the Mediterranean to Illyricum. Those thousands of miles and all the converts and all the churches that were planted. This is, the, this is the ministry of the gospel. It is the ministry of Christ. It is the ongoing ministry of Christ It is seeking to achieve something in every person's life, the obedience of their faith to God. That's what it's after. Not only as an unconverted person, but even as you're a converted person. It's seeking the obedience of faith to God. So there's the ministry of Christ. It's after this. But there's some means involved that he highlights, and he highlights three of them here. He says, by word and deed... The ministry includes words and workings, if you will, truth and transformation. 
So there's concepts that are being taught and there's a life being lived. And you can see them both in Paul. You can see them both in the churches that he raised up. By the power of signs and wonders. Right? Ministry, full gospel ministry included the intrusion of the supernatural. This is, remember, this is Paul 25 years after Pentecost. This is not Paul just explaining the day of Pentecost. There was a day of outpouring. It was an amazing day of power. There was this intrusion of the supernatural. and all happened back there on that day back there. No, he's 25 years later saying full gospel ministry has been, the Spirit of God has been intruding and intruding and intruding for 25 years now in what I've been a part of. It's normal. It's normal for the church. When Paul's writing here to the Romans, if you'd have just driven across, more than across town, but if you'd have driven a little ways, you'd have bumped into a church in Corinth at this very same time. And what was normal, if you'd have walked in, you were just traveling through Corinth during this same time when Paul's writing this, and you said, hey, is there a church here? Yeah, there's a bunch of churches. They're gathering in people's homes, and and then we'd go in, and you met with them. You would experience something that looks like 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13 and 14. You would experience a meeting that contains supernatural intrusions where the gifts of the Spirit were operating and people were experiencing phenomena. They were not just explaining the gospel, although they were doing that. They were experiencing the outpoured spirit in their midst. What Paul said 25 years later after the day of Pentecost was true in churches. It was normal for that to happen. And then the last thing he says, the means was by the power of the Spirit of God. By the power of the Spirit of God. And I want to awaken something in each of us this morning. This is where we're going to close. Oh, it's not over here. Eric, you can go ahead and get ready to come back up. Let me awaken something in you that, that the Lord awakened in me. I'm so grateful that he did. I mean, I began to look at Acts uh, over a year ago, knowing that we were headed in that direction. And just began, I mean, I read through it and read through it and read through it and read through it and just hung out in it and just let it kind of soak on me. But I, I think a, a key, a hinge verse in all of Acts is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Right, so we have source of ministry, we have goal of ministry, we have the mission field explained in that verse. But I, can I tell you that as I've meditated on that verse, that verse has become an everyday pursuit in my thinking, in my heart. I literally, I wake up in the morning taking God up on his word, reminding God, not that he needs to be reminded, but I need to be reminded that he said this. God, you told me I would receive power. God, you said today I would dwell in your power. And I begin to think about what I have coming up. If, If I'm meeting with somebody for a counseling meeting, I've done this in counseling meetings. I've done this to share the gospel with folks. I've done this when I go in the hospital room. uh, And I do it quite a bit as I study and as I prepare to to preach. I remind myself of the promise of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You shall receive power. So I expect that when I'm sitting and counseling somebody, 
that there's going to be this strange intrusion of God in that time together with them. They're coming in. I know they're coming in to discuss a situation that I don't fully understand or know about. But I just know God promised me I would receive power by the Holy Spirit. And so at any moment, I'm just, I'm just believing the power of God is going gonna, is gonna to look like 1 Corinthians 12. It's going to look like an intrusion of the Spirit. And some awareness is going to come into my soul about a situation in their life. Or I'm going to say something. And, and you know, I don't know how many meetings I had this year where a couple sat there. And, and I just say this like Peter shared last week. I just want to give you some sense of reality. This, this is today. It's not way back long time ago, Pentecost, A.D. 33. But to be sitting with a couple and all of a sudden these thoughts come in and you begin to share this and this and this and this and the couple turns to each other and literally says, oh, my God, we just said exactly that at the traffic light before we came into the building. And they have another person say, I mean, you, you kind of you realize it when they just get this strange smile on their face like, you got recording devices in my house? And the reality is we don't. But by the Spirit, God intrudes into our lives. And what I think is true in any moment is if any of us are giving ourselves to minister to one another, and we recognize Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is the reality that defines us, that in any moment when you're ministering to anyone can be a moment where Acts chapter 1 verse 8 takes flight. You shall receive Because remember, what Paul commends here in Romans is not just a message. It is a people who have been overwhelmed by a message who now repeat that message to others. But their lives, you are full of goodness. Hmm. I wonder if that goodness might need the power of the Spirit to get pulled off. I wonder if you might need to just be overwhelmed by the Spirit to treat some people who don't deserve to be treated good, to treat them good. And if that would characterize the church, supernatural moments of forgiveness and care and ministry and sacrifice and involvement with each other. I think that's what you're encountering here in this full gospel ministry. Look at this thought from Terry Virgo. He says, it has been a great sadness to me to see two schools of thought within the evangelical church over many decades now. Those who come glorifying in manifestations of power sometimes seem dismissive of those whom they regard as cold theologians. I once heard a man speaking at a large conference saying that theology was the enemy of the church and that if we we only could abandon doctrinal perspectives, the church would be a happier place. What tragic nonsense. Listen, this is, can you imagine you're going you're gonna to tell Paul, Paul, you could have stopped at like chapter 2 of Romans. And just pray, man. Just call down God. What's the matter with you? Just pray for the Spirit to move. Paul, that's the problem with you, man. you got 15 chapters worth of stuff to wade through. That's not what you encounter in full gospel ministry from this man. We got no intentions of getting rid of the bookstore. I mean, I say that peculiar because some people are like, hey, why don't you quit telling people to read, read books? Tell them just go pray, man. Get with God. Hey, I believe in both. And you should believe in both. 
And if you're an egghead who only reads books, you got a problem. You need to put the book down. Let the book stir you. Put it down. Get with God. Let the Holy Spirit fall on you and do some things in you that have to do with you. Your personal name. Your experience. The next thing God has for you. And there's some people who are just waiting for God to move and waiting for God to move and waiting for God to move who need to pick up a book so the book can tell you, go stand over there and wait for God to, to move. Oh, all right. Next thing you know, boom, God shows up in your life in amazing ways. Where would you get that idea? Somebody taught it to me. It's not a bad thing. Books aren't bad. They're not our enemies. Paul didn't hate books. Virgo says, we also see and hear those who love theological insight and savor the doctrines of Scripture, expressing equally dismissive remarks about Christians who are enjoying God's power as though they were mere children, preoccupied with experience. How I long for a recovery of true biblical Christianity, where the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, also raised the dead. It seems that profound theology and great signs and wonders happily cohabitated in Paul's life and ministry. Listen, that's full gospel ministry. The power of God amongst the people of God when the proclamation of the gospel is taking place. So can we, can we just do something here this morning? Next week we're going to take apart the proclamation of the gospel that Peter did. But can we pay attention here? Something happened before the proclamation of the gospel that I think contributed to an audience that said they were pierced to the heart and they said, what must we do? Well, what came before that? An upper room encounter with God where some Velcro got installed and the outpouring of God that stuck to their lives in powerful and amazing ways. Let's stand up together. Lord, more, more than just words that we can listen to. God, we have, we have gathered here together to receive from you, Lord. To receive words, to receive power, to receive promptings and insights and conviction, to receive faith and movement in our lives. God, we're gathered here because we need you, Lord. Lord, you said there was a day for your people when you would receive power. Well, Lord, thank you that we live in the day of that power. Lord, thank you that we don't need to wait for the day of Pentecost to come. Lord, we live in the day of the outpouring of Joel. God, I don't want to be a fool and think just because I live in the day, I know how to receive what's being poured out. Because I know I don't always. So Lord, I pray this morning for grace from you to receive your outpouring. God, I pray for upper room grace. Lord, I, I pray for some this morning who are here. Perhaps many of us are here. God, we got one-sided Velcro. 
in our lives. And God, you move and we don't sense anything. And God, you move again and we're briefly moved, but then it just slides off of our lives. God, what you wanted to do was to stick to us, to cling to us, to affect us, to redefine us, to change our names, to change our mission, to redefine what would be about the future of our lives. Not just a moment in the past. God, this morning, even right now, Lord, right now, I pray, Lord, you'd bring awareness. Can you just sense God right now? Just dwelling with you, making you aware. Making you aware how many little Velcro hooks are in your life. Making you aware of how God wants to pour out His Spirit upon you. How He wants to prepare you to receive so much more than what you've received. Lord, I pray, Spirit of God, Don't be in a hurry just yet. Holy Spirit, speak to us this morning. God, I thank you that Pentecost is on the other side of the cross. So, Lord, I thank you that we we don't approach you this morning with a sense that our sins keep us from you. Lord, that's that's not how we approach you. Approach you in gratitude that the barrier has been removed. Lord, we approach you aware that we fall short, but aware that now that that falling short has been covered in grace, that you are eager to move in our lives. Lord, aware that the, the person here this morning with the greatest of offenses in their life has been qualified by the person and work of Jesus Christ whom Peter will preach in these verses. Lord, there's some people here this morning who are living lives, and they're aware of this, that need power. You will receive power. Lord, there's some folks here right now, they just they feel overwhelmed by their lives. They feel inadequate to meet the day, Lord. Lord, can you convince them this morning you care about that? You care about that place, that dwelling place that they live in. Lord, you care about that place of responsibility that they're feeling the weight of. And Lord, can you speak to them? God, I thank you for how many times you have awakened my heart this past year to the reality, Keith, you shall receive power. There's power, God. There's power that's not my own. There's power that comes from some other place. Lord, it's here. It's available, Lord. Would you open our hearts to that? God, I pray for moms that are in this room that feel exhausted and overwhelmed. And Lord, they're seeking, they're seeking to live the life Paul commended in Romans 15. That they're full of goodness. Goodness in their care for their family. Goodness in dealing with needs in a child's life. And they feel overwhelmed. But you will receive power. God, I pray for that power. Because it testifies of a risen Christ who touches the ministry of moms. God, I thank you for men who gathered here this past week for prayer Friday morning. Lord, and many hearts were stirred to realize, God, you're calling us as men. You're compelling us as men 
to step into places that our, our resume says we tried and failed and we tried and failed and we tried and failed. So God, I know that I join the men here in being aware, Lord, that what you're calling us to in living lives that are full of goodness needs power by the Holy Spirit. Oh God, would you empower us, Spirit of God, be in our midst to empower our lives, to compel us, to give us confidence. God, because I know if you'll show up and you're going to be there with this power of the ages for me, well, then I can go do this. I can step out in faith. Lord, I, I can witness to that person that I'm afraid to bring this subject up to them because you said you would, you'd, you'd join me in that moment with some strange power. Words would all of a sudden make sense and they'd be compelling that mysteriously, oh Lord, may we not think Peter was such an awesome preacher on that day. Oh no, God, you poured your spirit out and joined it to the words that came from his mouth so that men were pierced to the heart. God, I pray for that kind of power. God, that our children who grow up in the church would be pierced to the heart. Overwhelmed by the power of God at work in our midst. I just want you to let God write that verse in your heart. I want you to make use of it. You, you will receive power. Can you take God up on that? Can you wake up in the morning? Can you go to that meeting? Can you face that situation recognizing God promised you unique power so that your life could create opportunity to minister the gospel and proclaim this truth that your life is absorbed in living? God, give us in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, awareness. As we live our lives, as we live them this week, as we go from this place, we have been given power. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You guys be